You're listening to the latest preaching from Brixham Community Church. There's been quite an emphasis in recent weeks on the enemy and his plans and so on, and I thought I'd go in line with that and share something with you a little bit different, but based on the Old Testament and talk to you about victory over the enemy. And to do that, we're going to look at a very short passage in 2 Samuel 23, verses 20 and 21. Beniah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant fighter from Kabzeel, who performed great exploits. He struck down two of Moab's best men, and the old Bible says lion-like men. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. He struck down... A huge Egyptian, although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club and he snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. What do you do when you read passages like that? And do you sometimes say to yourself, what has this got to do with us? Well, Romans 15 verse 4 tells us that everything that was written in the past, in the scriptures, was to teach us so that through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And another verse which is very important for us to stress here and something which has been mentioned in recent weeks, Ephesians 6 verse 12 for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Why have I put that verse before you? Simply because it's very important we understand when we read in the Old Testament about people killing people and winning great victories and everything else, that we aren't expected to do that today. Our enemy is not a physical flesh and blood enemy. Our enemy is a spiritual enemy, as we've just read from Ephesians 6 and verse 12. So, I mean, just talking of Egyptians here, uh, here's an Egyptian guy and he's defeated by Benaiah, who was an Israelite. Now, however much you love Israel, I want to say to you, you've also got to love Egypt because we are Christians and God loves the whole world and the gospel has to go to all the nations. So I hope you never, with your understanding of the Old Testament, get the feeling that uh, you know, we're meant to be against certain countries and so on because that is simply not the case. God has told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to everybody. God loved the world. And he gave his only begotten son. So understand that. So our battle is not against physical enemies, but it is against spiritual forces. Nevertheless, we can learn from the Old Testament, and we've already had a passage from Joshua this morning, which did something very, very similar. Uh, you can learn some principles from the physical battles of the Old Testament which apply to spiritual battles for us today. I hope that's making sense to you. So we're going to consider the nature of the enemy, the danger of the battle, and the weapons of our warfare. And before I get into the nature of the enemy, which is my first main point, 
I want you to notice that Benaiah had to deal with more than one enemy. There were two men from Moab, um, there was this lion, and there was this Egyptian. So the enemy comes in different shapes and sizes, if you like, and more than one kind of manifestation of the enemy comes against us. And you notice that each of his enemies was different. So it's not the same every time. Apply this in your own life and the issues that you face. We had a lovely testimony from Jan this morning about issues in her life and how the Lord's helping her to face those. Well, apply some of these principles. We don't all face the same issues. Our enemies are not all the same. Some of Benaiah's enemies were unique to him. You may never have to fight a lion in a pit on a snowy day. I trust you don't. All right. So let's get into this then, the nature of the enemy. Uh, you'll notice then that Benaiah defeated two of Moab's, Moab's best men, lion-like men of Moab, a lion in a pit and a huge Egyptian. I'm going to take that in reverse order and we're going to look at Egypt first and we're going to do a bit of what used to be called typology. Now typology means that you find something in the Old Testament which is a, an illustration or a picture or something that's going to take place in the New Testament. So it's a kind of parable or metaphor for a spiritual truth which we see in the New Testament. Okay, so I'm going to talk about Egypt and as I say, not about national Egypt today or Egyptians today, but what in the Old Testament did Egypt symbolize for us as we are in a New Testament era? Well, very quickly, Egypt is a symbol for the world out of, what, out of which God's people had come. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul refers back to the Israelites and how they had wandered in the wilderness uh, and uh, disobeyed God in many, many ways. And then they entered into Canaan through the Jordan. And he talks about them having been baptized in the cloud and in the sea, the Red Sea and in the presence of God and so on. So following that analogy, you actually have the idea that they came out of Egypt, wandered through the wilderness and entered the promised land that is life in the spirit for the Christian. So Egypt is the world. We've come out of the world and we've come into the promised land of living life in the power of the Holy Spirit. You get the general idea there. So that's why Egypt is a picture of the world. Egypt is also a picture of the flesh on which God's people must not rely. And we don't have time to look at these, but if you go to Isaiah 30 and 31, that's chapters 30 and 31, you will see several occasions there where Egypt is... God's people are not to be relying on Egypt to protect them. They are meant to be relying on the Lord. The arm of flesh will fail you, says one of the old hymns. You dare not trust your own. I remember in Isaiah 36 and 37, in the great story of um, uh, Sennacherib attacking Jerusalem and so on, um, and uh, the, the, the Rabshakeh, 
the field commander tempts the inhabitants of Jerusalem and he says, don't trust on Egypt. It's like a broken reed, which if you lean on it, it will pierce your hand, you see. So don't rely on the flesh. And then, of course, in Hebrews 11.25, Moses, we're told, left behind the pleasures of sin for a season. All right. So... The world, the flesh, the pleasures of sin, all symbolized by Egypt. So our battle is not against Egypt physically. Our battle is against the world, the flesh, and sin. Or we might say the world, the flesh, and the devil, which brings us to the subject of the lion. The lion is a symbol for the devil. And we're told this in 1 Peter 5, 8. Of course, the devil is not a literal lion, but he's like a lion. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. <laughs> All right. So the, the enemy <laughs> is the devil. The enemy is the world, the enemy is the flesh, the enemy is sin, the enemy is the devil. Now, what about Moab? Now, this is a really big one, and I've got five points about Moab. Oh, dear. All right, but they'll be quick. Okay, now you only get this information by reading your Bible and studying your Bible. And, uh, you know, as you do that over the years, these things... Uh, you come to know them and understand them or you just have to uh, do a lot of page turning and try and find out references to Moab in the Old Testament. But I'm going to suggest to you, first of all, Moab is a symbol of sexual perversion. Why do I say that? Well, who was Moab? Well, he was the son of Lot and he was born as a result of Lot's elder daughter having sex with her father by getting him drunk so Moab did not get off to a good start and so there's something here symbolizing something wrong in the whole area of sex and I want to say to you this morning quite frankly one of the greatest enemies we face in our nation today is a misunderstanding of what sex is all about and the misuse of sex, and I'm not going to get into details because of time, but I think you know exactly what I'm talking about. I will simply say this, that as Christians, we have a biblical view of marriage, which is that sex should be confined to marriage, and by marriage we mean heterosexual marriage. There is no other marriage in the Bible. I cannot be plain than that. I'm not going to go any further than that. We believe what the Bible says and we say it fearlessly. But having used the word heterosexual, let me say there's as much perversion within the heterosexual side of things as there is in any other side in our society today. So this is not a bias one way or the other. Let us face the fact that we face a massive issue with the whole area of sex in the world today. Second thing that Moab symbolizes, temptation to idolatry. In Numbers 25, the Moabite women seduced the men of Israel and led them into idolatrous worship of the god Chemosh, which involved child sacrifice. Well, where could we go with this one? There isn't time to develop it, but think about it. Well, of course idolatry 
Anything you put before God is an idol. So you could apply that to just about anything. But when you talk about child sacrifice, doesn't the whole subject of abortion come into your mind? And isn't that one of the things, one of the greatest enemies we face in our society today? Not getting into a detailed discussion on that. Simply to say, Moab symbolizes a temptation to idolatry. Moab also symbolizes oppression. Judges 3.14 tells us how the Israelites were subject to or oppressed by the king, by Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Jesus said, the thief, the devil, comes not to give life, but he comes only to kill, uh, to kill and to steal and to destroy. We have an enemy. He's real. He seeks to oppress us. And there are multitudes of ways in which we can be oppressed. I'm going to come back to that a little bit later in the talk. Supernatural opposition is the next one. Do you remember the story of Balak in Numbers 22, 23, and 24? He was the king of Moab, and he hired Balaam to curse Israel, because Balaam was some kind of a prophet. But Balaam said, how shall I curse whom God has not cursed? You can pay me all the money you like. I can curse all I like, but it won't make any difference. If God hasn't cursed them, they're not cursed. I say in passing, friends, we never have to be frightened of anybody who curses us. We are God's children. If God hasn't cursed us, we are not cursed. Yes? So, you know, you get certain people who sort of put a curse on you. And, hey, don't worry about it. Laugh it off. Hallelujah. It'll just bounce back on them. Supernatural opposition symbolized here and t closely connected with that the final point on my demonic power and i get that simply from the idea that these were lion-like men of moab not the lion the devil but lion-like demons and we are wrestling we do struggle against a spiritual foe oh all a bit depressing really well this gets even worse now then look at the dangers of the battle. Numbers were against him. Two of Moab's best men. Not one, but two. Ah. Do you sometimes feel a bit outnumbered? I mean, when, when, when you look out at society, look, just look out at Brixham and think how few people come to church. And here are we, a, a, a minority. Yes, they're against us it would seem numbers are against us look at the world situation look at your own situation among your neighbors or in your workplace numbers seem to be against us appearances were against him lion-like men <laughs> does that mean they were as strong as lions or as savage as lions or even look like lions <laughs> we don't know Perhaps all three. But appearances were against him. And, you know, I, I watch stuff on the television these days and I think, oh, I mean, you want to be careful what you watch, you get really depressed if you're not careful. I mean, I said, preferably don't watch the news. 
No, I don't mean that because I think we need to be aware of what's going on. But you know, you could easily get quite depressed. Appearances do seem to be against us. And circumstances were against him. What about this? The lion in a pit. There was snow. It was slippery. He could have fallen down into the pit and the lion could have eaten him. His hands would have been cold. And how long had the lion been in the pit? We don't know, but it was probably hungry. Circumstances were certainly against him. The enemy was bigger. The Egyptian, according to 1 Chronicles 11:23, which tells the same story, was seven foot six tall. And he had superior weapons, a spear rather than a club. And all these things, oh gosh, the enemy's got so much going for him. The en- How on earth could we possibly win? Well, the answer is we can win and we will win. So we finish with the weapons of our warfare. Despite the enemies, despite the dangers, Benaiah conquered. Good old Benaiah! How did he do it? Firstly, Notice that he had experience in the fight. We're told he was from Kabzeel. Now, that was in Judah, but it was on the borders of Edom. So there would have been plenty of border skirmishes. That's why he'd had plenty of opportunity to perform great exploits. Verse 20. So... Next time you have a brush with the enemy, next time you're facing an issue, remind yourself that actually this is an opportunity to gain experience in the fight. You'll not get strong in the fight without having a fight. Does that make sense? So see the problem as an opportunity. See the problem as an opportunity to learn to perform great exploits for God. Yes, we face problems, but every problem is an opportunity. As I've said many times in preaching on other themes, you see, you can't be victorious unless you have a battle. There's nothing to be victorious in unless you have a battle. So, Every battle is an opportunity for victory. So he gained experience in the fight. Second thing is, and we can see this clearly, we can apply it to us, he had the promise of God. Numbers 24, 17 declared that Moab would be crushed. Wow. So he could move forward against the Moabites, if you like, simply because God had said that Moab would be crushed. I want to tell you, way back in the Garden of Eden, there was a promise that our enemy would be crushed. Remember the serpent? You remember the seed of the woman? And the serpent would bruise his heel. Oh, but the seed of the woman would bruise or crush the serpent's head. Thank God for the seed, singular, Jesus, who came to crush the serpent's head. Thank God he's won a victory. So he had experience in the fight. He had the promise of God. 
And then this is the most important bit. He entered into the victories of his king. Who was Benaiah's king? David. David. It's a great name, David. <laughs> Just a little biased. <laughs> David had 37, I think the number I totaled up, mighty men. And you get lists of them in this particular chapter of their exploits. And we're just looking at Benaiah's, but there's a whole lot of other guys who did great things. And they're all listed in these chapters. So Benaiah was one of David's mighty men. And I don't need to remind you, surely, well, maybe I do need to remind you that David had already defeated Moab in 2 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 2. Some of you wouldn't be aware of that. But you would certainly be aware that David was already a lion killer. Remember the story? And David was certainly already a giant killer. In fact, Goliath was probably nine foot six tall. Wow. I imagine that Benaiah learned in two ways from David. Firstly, by his example, and secondly, by way of inspiration. When you have got a king like David, you want to feel valiant, brave. You're going to go out and do exploits in the name of your king. Yes, of course you do. <laughs> and you know where I'm going now because you know that we have a greater king than David. And Jesus has already conquered the enemy for us. Just think about it. Firstly, in the temptation in the wilderness... Jesus confronted what could be symbolized, and we don't have time to develop the, the, the temptation story here, but the world and the flesh and the devil all symbolized in every area that Adam fell in Genesis chapter 3, or was it 2? Anyway, wherever it was there, back in Genesis. In every area where Adam fell, Jesus triumphed. He conquered the world. He conquered the flesh he conquered the devil in every way in his temptation and we can actually learn from the way that he conquered temptation to conquer it too and then of course Jesus conquered the enemy during his earthly ministry he faced the enemy of sickness and dealt with it he faced the enemy of blindness and dealt with that he faced the enemy of leprosy and dealt with that. He faced the enemy of demon possession and dealt with that. With just a word, ouch! Faced every conceivable enemy. And Peter, who spent three years with Jesus during that ministry, was able to say in Acts 10, verse 38... God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed 
of the devil. Oppression, one of the enemies that we face. Jesus delivers all who are oppressed by the devil. Hallelujah. And so we finish with this. Because the final thing, the final enemy that Jesus faced was death itself. As Beniah snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear, Jesus has taken the enemy's chief weapon out of his hand and destroyed him with it. What's the enemy's chief weapon? Death itself. And when Jesus died on the cross of Calvary, he took death and used the enemy's weapon to destroy Satan's power over death and the grave. Hebrews 2.14, by his death, he has destroyed him who has the power of death. That is the devil. Hallelujah. So conclusion. From the battles, the physical battles in the Old Testament, we can learn valuable lessons about our spiritual battles today. Our battle is with the world, the flesh, and the devil, and that's manifested in a whole variety of ways like sexual perversion, idolatry, oppression, and demonic power. Numbers, appearances, and circumstances may appear to be against us, but we have powerful weapons with which to overcome the enemy. We have the promises of God. Jesus, our King, has already conquered the enemy for us, and in his name, we too have the opportunity to do great exploits. Let's pray together. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, for these lovely stories in the Old Testament, which at first sight don't seem to have very much to do with us today but which, through the lens of the New Testament, show us great spiritual truths. Thank you that our battle is not against flesh and blood today, but there is an even more real battle going on in the spiritual realm. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us, through Jesus' victorious death upon the cross, all the weapons we need to overcome our enemy, to deal with our issues, and to do great exploits for you. Jesus, I just pray right now for any who are facing great difficulties, oppression, temptation, all kinds of things the enemy might throw against them. And I just stand with them in the name of Jesus and proclaim the victory of the cross over every temptation, over every difficulty, over every issue 
over every sickness, over every problem, in the name of Jesus, who won the victory at Calvary, we proclaim victory today. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit brixham.church.